Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin, We the Species. Uh, it's um, February 21st. Uh, it's exactly a week after Valentine's Day. And uh, it, this is my little Johnny Carson monologue. It would take me a long time to, to kind of put together how Gabriella Rosa and I got together, uh, especially since she's uh, in Sydney, Australia right now. So this is live from Australia. Actually, it, it's um, Tuesday, right? Well, over here it is. It's Tuesday the 22nd. I always say we're in the future. Yes, you so. are. <laughs> yes, you are. So, uh, Gabriella, I'm going to introduce her in two seconds. She's, uh, she's, in, uh, she's an amazing person. We, we just spent a long time chatting, uh, involved in infertility mainly uh, uh, and, and she has her uh, Rosa Institute and she's got her master's from Harvard and another master's in nutrition and naturopathy. I mean, uh, so my head is swelling. We, we've discovered about six or seven points of commonality that link us together, even though she's on the other side of the world. So uh, enough said by me, I, I am so thrilled to introduce you, Gabriella. So maybe a little bio, and then we'll kind of jump into something that's very near and dear to me, infertility. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I think, you know, you, you touched the highlights. You know, I'm a fertility specialist. I'm a natu naturopathic doctor. And for the last 20 years, I have been helping couples overcome infertility and miscarriage, even when other treatments have failed. So that's what I show up to do every day. And, and it's a wow. So uh, you know, I, I don't mind saying, and again, what drew me uh, to you was the infertility thing. And, and, and um, I went through it. We went through it, you know, my wife and I, and, and there's so many questions. Um, so you have the Institute, uh, just the whole nature of infertility. I, I mentioned to you, I, I, I have my own pet theories. It's growing the problem, uh, is it not? Look, you know, it's interesting because on one hand it is, and there's a lot to be said for the lack of understanding that most people have about what fertility is. You know, often when we talk about the medical paradigm, we're looking at disease and disease processes and, you know, lack of function, but we often study conditions from a perspective of people who aren't as well as they could be and we almost miss the other side of that coin which is health and fertility you know I mean if we think about it fertility is a transgenerational event you know you Calvin were actually gestated in your mother's womb yes but actually also in your grandmother's womb you see, women, we are born with all the eggs we'll ever have. And the reality is that when any person is in their mother's womb, they, you know, they're already there when their mother is being gestated in her mother's womb, you know. And so the exposures that we have transgenerationally are going to make a difference in terms of how genes are switched on and off through our own lifetimes. Because, you know, there's a great saying in genetics that, you know, um, the environment, uh, sorry, the, the um, genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And ultimately what happens is that depending on, you know, we've all heard of people who have never smoked a day in their life and die of lung cancer. And then you have people who are chain smokers who never develop lung cancer. 
or any form of cancer, right? They develop other health conditions. And the reason for that is our own susceptibilities over our lifetime. And those get inbuilt by the time that we are eight weeks you know, in gestation, we already have all of our organs, wow. all of our little fingerprints. Everything is set for the rest of our life. From eight weeks, we literally just grow. So the time to optimize a person's health, a child's health, a child's future fertility isn't necessarily, in fact, it's not when a woman is already pregnant. It's in the time preceding that. Wow. You know, there are many factors that go into this. And, you know, if we look at even just from a biological perspective, a woman's egg maturation cycle is approximately 12 months long. You know, the egg that is ovulated in this cycle has gone through major maturation processes previously that are approximately four to six months each. And so what happens from primordial follicle, the, the eggs we're born with, to primary follicle takes approximately four, you know, five months or so. From primary follicle to, to uh, ovulatory follicle, it takes another you know, six months plus. So the reality is that often we think of fertility or infertility in the moment. You know, we look, infertility is a, a retrospective analysis, really. You know, really we're looking at the fact that we've got a result, an end result that we see, i.e. inability to conceive, inability to keep a healthy pregnancy to term. But that is an outcome of many biochemical chain reactions that have started way before that. And sometimes, like I said, in previous generations. Wow. So when we are looking to, and there are still many things that people can do, obviously, in any given cycle, in any given month, in any given year. However, as the fertility window decreases as women age, and for men as well, by the way, you know, there is a decrease in fertility over time that often doesn't get spoken about, but is real. And, you know, as we age, men and women, we then obviously start to shorten that fertility window. And as the fertility window shortens, we end up with a situation where the ability to conceive is decreased, diminished, or rendered impossible at some point, okay? But the reality is that throughout this entire conversation, there are, ex there are extra exposures that we are all faced with from the number of chemicals that are in the environment, the combination of those chemicals, radiation, you know, pollution of many different types, uh, stress levels. There are so many things, infections, you know, often we don't realize, but silent infections can make a huge difference. This is one of the reasons as to why, you know, we really want to work to prevent sexually transmitted infections in, in teenage years because you get chlamydia at the age of 18 and you might very well be infertile by the age of 25 to 30 when you're actually at prime, you know, wanting to become a parent age. And of course, for tubal factor or tubal issues, there is IVF, but IVF is not a silver bullet. You know, it's not a situation where you are absolutely going to go and get an egg and a sperm together and you have a baby, because if that was the case, we would have a 100% life birth rate each time that we get an egg and a sperm together through IVF. As you would know, that's not the case. Wow. Um, my head is swimming. Um... <laughs> Well, uh, I, 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 it's my own uh, uneducated uh, observation. I, I think I mentioned this to you, I did, before we went on air, but, uh, and I think I said it initially, you know, I, I think the world is heading towards uh, um, 
a, a tsunami uh, of infertility based on the things you said uh, and based on, on, on societal changes. Uh, you know, uh, people working later, couples uh, uh, mm. working later. Lifestyle, you know, diet, all of those factors all that, play a role. It, all, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, what's interesting about it is that people just take, you know, what we see on face value. It's like, you know, if, if for example, you go through a period of eating too much food and you become overweight, right? What happens for a lot of people is that they think that they're going to go on a diet for a week and they're going to lose 20 kilos, you know, or 40 pounds. We know that's not the case. We know that doesn't happen. We know that it's a process and it takes time. And especially if we're looking at optimization and maintenance of a new state of health, it's going to take time to arrive at that point. So fertility is a similar thing, you know, and especially because it's almost like, you know, if you plant a patch of grass with seeds, I don't know if you've ever done that, but, you know, if you, if you decided to give this experiment a go, what you will do is you will go get the seeds, get the soil, you know, get the fertilizer, get the water, get all the things that you need to make sure that that happens. You'll sprinkle the seeds on the soil. You will then need to be watering that on a regular basis. You need to be tendering it. You need to be fertilizing it. A lot of the action that activates or animates those seeds is happening underneath the soil and you cannot see it and you won't be able to see it for weeks and sometimes months you know depending on what time of year and you know what's happening what else is going on how much you're actually taking care of it and so on and it does not mean that that action isn't happening underneath the soil but you cannot actually observe it so for a lot of people when it comes to lifestyle and optimizing health and optimizing fertility, many times people give up and they don't actually engage on a consistent effort on that uh, front because they feel like, oh, this is not working, right? Oh, this is too hard. Oh, you know, I ate a healthy meal last week. Why am I not 20 kilos lighter? Or, you know, my booty isn't on, on the back of my head kind of thing, right? Whatever it is that people are trying to achieve. But the reality is that every process takes time and it takes consistency. Humans are not great in general at putting in the work and expecting that, you know, eventually they will have a result. We're certainly being trained these days by technology, by social media, to have immediate reward, immediate gratification, you know, that we want immediate responses. And we expect that the body's going to operate that, like, that way. And the reality is there is no app update on the iTunes store that is going to give you your fertility in that manner. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to kind of wrap our heads around and almost come to a realization that, you know, this is the process of doing the work and putting the work for many months before you can actually expect that there will be a result. Now, in the same way that what you said is true, that, you know, if we continue as a species in the way that we are going, there will be an increase in infertility and an increase in not just infertility, but, you know, we're seeing that there are many conditions that are, you know, congenital diseases and all sorts of things that happen for the offspring that ultimately in the womb and prior to in the preparation, the preconception preparation can be avoided if there are steps taken 
before a conception is in place, before a conception happens. But if we don't understand these factors, if we don't understand these truths, if we don't understand these biological realities, we act in a certain way that, you know, we, we kind of postpone our result. We kind of say, you know, like, I know that I was thinking about this the other day when I went to the beach and I was looking at people, you know, in Australia, we have a decrease in the ozone layer around this part of the world. And so the sun here is really strong and the incidence of um, skin cancers is much higher than most other places in the world. Also, we, we are very lucky because we get a lot of sun. But I was looking, I was at the beach and I was thinking, gosh, I wonder how many people actually have sunscreen on. And I was thinking that from two perspectives. One is that obviously it's documented that sunscreen prevents skin cancer and certainly helps to, to uh, decrease skin damage. But also most sunscreens are toxic, right? And we don't realize this. There are lots of nanoparticles and there are lots of you know, toxic components and compounds that can impact endocrine function, which is hormonal balance and so wow. on. So there is a two-edged sword here, mm. you know, and then of course I started thinking on an unrelated topic, which is, you know, decreasing sun damage as women age, we certainly become more aware of skin and sun damage, you know, and so, but all of these factors are something that we do need to take into consideration because we think that something is innoxious, you know, in, like, um, what is the word? <laughs> I just lost the word. <laughs> Oh, something as innocuous. innocuous thank you yes something as innocuous as sunscreen because you think well if they sell it in the you know shelf of every supermarket or every uh, pharmacy every place you go you'll be able to buy sunscreen you would not use sunscreen and by the way it's not every sunscreen i, I recommend people go to the environmental working group websites uh, forward slash skin deep they have a fantastic initiative the environmental working group on reducing toxins in cosmetics and endocrine disruptors and cancer causing components and all sorts of things so if people are wanting to buy things that are less toxic they are going to be able to find the options that are available you know through through these changes these channels but the reality is that for the most part if you're just buying cheap sunscreen you are going to fall into the situation where definitely there will be components and compounds within those products that are going to be negatively impacting your oh. health. So by being aware of these things, you then start to become you know, better at ascertaining and assessing what do you want to bring into your home? What do you want to bring into your personal environment? What do you want to bring into your body? Because whatever it is that you're putting on your skin, you're going to be absorbing into your body. It's as, as if you're eating it. Wow. You know, sometimes the skin, the absorption rate of products and things on skin, they're even testing and have for many years now tested medication delivery through skin. Why? Because it absorbs so much better than digestively. And so what happens, you know, like nicotine patches and, you know, um, hormone replacement therapy, there are lots of different types of products and, and medications out there that are delivered by this means. So the same then needs to be taken into account and into consideration with the things we are putting on our bodies, not just in our bodies, because whether you like it or not, whatever you put on your skin, you are going to be ingesting into your body wow. in, in that way. So, you know, all of these factors, Calvin, 
definitely will play a role when it comes to the exacerbation of health conditions that are associated with hormonal imbalance and endocrine disruption. Because lots of these chemicals, lots of these compounds, lots of these exposures that we have in our day to day are decidedly going to have an impact, you know, in how our body is operating. And if we are unaware, we are going to keep choosing to use those things because they're quote unquote inverted commas safe, right? Because of course they have to be safe because why would they be selling in the shelf of a supermarket or a pharmacy if they were unsafe? That's the usual thinking Correct. of the general population is that if it's available out in the marketplace, of course it's safe. No, actually it's not. And there are many studies that I'm part of a research group and at Harvard and the, the whole focus of our research is environmental exposures. And one of the studies that's being conducted right now is disinfectant product byproducts and the impact on endocrine disruption. And the reason that this is such an important topic is that do we even think twice about the bleach that we put in our, in our bowl in the toilet to clean it? You know, the reality is that most people don't think twice. Now, what happens with that? Obviously, there is the volatile organic compound, you know, um, consumption that goes on via the olfactory system. So you smell all of those products and you're actually ingesting it oh, yeah. in that way. The second thing that happens, and this is, you know, like obviously not such a long process, but what happens, water around the world is recycled uh, for reuse, you know, in the tap, for example. So what happens if you've got tap water that you're washing your food, that you're cooking with, that some people are drinking without being filtered, you have just got about 800 to 900 different chemical compounds in that tap water in your body without even having to bat an eyelid. So that bleach that you put in your toilet bowl is actually ending up in your glass of water. An extra is added because of the chlorine. So there's, there's studies that show that, you know, medications, Prozac and you name it, the oral contraceptive everything ends up in the water. So people don't filter their water to drink, to cook and so on. And they're ingesting it and drinking it. So when you ask me, you know, is infertility on the rise? Well, if people don't change their exposure profile, right, by inserting things that are going to, of course, from a uh, governmental perspective, of course, we need to be able to put guidelines. Of course, we need to be able to drive policy around all of these factors. But these are slow processes. You know, it requires a lot of research for a policy to be written up on something like this. However, as a, a member of the general public, by having this kind of knowledge, by having this level of education, you can actually invest in a $200 water filter that you can attach to your tap that you can utilize to cook your, you know, to use your water to cook with, that you can utilize to drink water that is going to be safer and less toxic for you. So all of these factors are going to protect the future generations Correct. from the exposures of all of those toxins. So you see, it's not that it's a lost cause. Yes, infertility is on the rise. Yes, there are exposures that are on the rise. That you know, you can't walk into your home these days without being bombarded by chemicals. You know, any, everything we touch from a book to a pen to a receipt. You know, receipts are full of bisphenols and BPA. You know, people go, oh, I'm gonna buy this water bottle, this plastic water bottle that's BPA free. Well, good. the news is, newsflash, that's probably BPA free, but it's got BPA, E, F, G, 
you know, and so on. Anything that's got plastics is going to have phthalates. Everything that's got plastics is going to have plasticizers. All of those chemicals are endocrine disruptors. Right. They increase the risk of female reproductive diseases that are associated with excess estrogen conditions. For example, fibroids, endometriosis, you name it. So, you know, there's links to plastics and increased risk of miscarriage. So all of these different things are things that, you know, instead of having a plastic water bottle, having a glass, you know, my glass incidentally is actually a, I think it's, it's a jam jar. It's a preserve jar. It's one liter <laughs> because then I can measure my water intake in the day. But it works, you see, and it reduces my exposure to certain chemicals and toxins that I can avoid, that are avoidable. And I think that that's how people need to start thinking. Wow. How can I prevent the preventable, you know? You know, I, 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 we discovered seven or eight, six, seven, eight uh, commonality factors before we went on air. There's one more. I, 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 I helped put together a a group of uh, climate uh, change environmentalists all over the world um, in Ecuador, Scotland. And we meet uh, every so often and have panels and we talk about these things. Uh, and I'm hugely environmentally aware. I have a water filter. Good. Like a couple hundred Excellent. bucks a year. They come in every year, change the filter around. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, and not too long ago, I, I read an article that 40 or 50 people, 40 or 50 million people around where I live here in Jersey, uh, 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 are exposed to um, uh, endocrine disruptors and in, in, in hormones in the water. So uh, I immediately started to palpate myself to see if I had breast engorgement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and mean, for men, I'm, it's a big deal. Right. Because you see, the thing is, when you do, then the next thing you can be sure of is that prostate enlargement is going to absolutely be on the cards. I mean, for men in general, you know, this is one of the big things. We talk about fibroids and endometriosis for women, but we're talking about prostate issues for men in terms of hormonally active, you know, concerns. So it, all of these factors are definitely going to be very problematic for men and women over a life cycle. Wow. Um... You said I, I took notes. I'm, I'm taking notes here, listening to you. Ian. Notes, <laughs> notes on top of notes. notes good, on, good. On of, this is important. Yeah, you know, it is important. <laughs> this stuff is so important. Uh, it's like I want to shake people that they got to watch this and listen to you because it's it's right on. It's happening. You know, it's yes. happening. Uh, uh, I'm so environmentally aware about uh, so many different uh, things you you talked about. Um, uh, you know, we, we talked about infertility. Uh, is that one of the subtle reasons why China uh, changed their one child policy now and, and they opened up the gates? Look, you know, I think that we can get very political, I don't want to get political. In, in, in that conversation. And I'm not a political person. Me so neither. All I'm going to say is that I think that obviously... <laughs> I don't know if you edit these episodes or not. No, there's no editing <laughs> here. No yeah, editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, so here's the thing. So here's the thing. I think that, you know, different countries have different policies based on things they want to achieve, right? And, of course, there are different times in, in a, a country's life cycle 
that they may have a priority and they, those priorities might change. So the reality of it is that across the board, over the entire world population, we know that infertility or the fertility rates are not necessarily decreasing, right? They're, they're, main, they're, they're being maintained overall. In fact, they're growing. We know this because we know the population is growing globally. So different countries, of course, will have different rates and, and it will go up and down across the board. So I think that there are many, many reasons as to why countries would, you know, because think about it. If you essentially don't have a population, you don't have people to pay taxes. You don't have people to work to earn money to pay taxes, right? And that is in every developed nation is going to be something that is of relevance. And countries, of course, want to protect themselves, want to protect their population, want to ensure that they are at a, in a place where they can be sustainable over the long term. So I think that there are many reasons as to why that would be the case. And, you know, I can comment as far as that goes. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, one uh, quick, one more quick question, and we'll, we'll kind of go into change. Because uh, honestly, I could talk to you for hours. No, I'm serious. I mean, I literally hours. And, and you know, we're going to. Um, so uh, is, is freezing eggs a good option for couples? Look, you know, here's the thing. Freezing eggs is never a great option. And it's not even a great option for very young women, teenage women who are diagnosed with cancer, for example, are usually given that as an option because they're not going to be able to reproduce with, you know, with their own eggs post chemotherapy. And we know that the thawing rate after you know, eggs are frozen is not very, it's not very good, even through vitrification, which is the very best way that you can at this point in time freeze eggs. So the truth is that just because you freeze your eggs doesn't mean that they're going to thaw out and that they're going to thaw out and be able to be fertilized. You know, sometimes it can be damaged. The egg com compared to an embryo, where embryos are much better at being able to be frozen because their cytoplasm, cytoplasm isn't as large. So for an egg, the, the part inside is very filled with fluid. And so basically, you know, you've got the nucleus, but you've got a big pool of, of fluid inside the egg, which means that its, its ability to thaw out is decreased if, appropriately so that it can still be fertilized is decreased. So women typically leave freezing their eggs to after the age of 30, right? Which already is where their fertility starts to decline anyway which means that you then have the extra challenge of not only having eggs to thaw out effectively, but you've got extra damage um, that just through, you know, time has been inflicted upon the eggs. So, you know, is it a good strategy? It could be, but it could also mean that you don't have a, a baby with your own eggs. The thing about this, and, and it's something that I often also say to my patients all the time, is like, you know, depending on the way, because sometimes people, these are in this day and age, you see, Calvin, here's the reality. When I started doing this work 20 years ago, it was not a situation where if a couple absolutely decidedly wanted to have a baby, that they would put enough time, energy, money into it, and that they would be guaranteed to walk away with one. It just wasn't like that because the technology wasn't there. This day and age is very different. In this day and age, if a couple absolutely wants a baby and they are willing to put in enough energy, time and money, <coughs> excuse me, 
into it, they will absolutely walk away with a baby. The reality is that now we have donor egg, we have donor embryo processes, we have lots of other different ways of being able to create a baby. You know, it's not my place to judge what people want and why they want in their lives to have a baby at whatever age. And sometimes there are family structures that allow for people to have, you know, like for example, I have one patient of mine who had a baby a year ago, she was 58. And her husband was wow. 64. Wow. And they had met when she was 14. They had different lives. He married someone. She married someone. She became a He became a widow. She got divorced. They met again in their 30s. They tried for many, many years to have a baby. And for many years, like over a decade, to have a baby. And they were unsuccessful to have a baby with our own eggs. Eventually, they came to us and, you know, we did what it is that we needed to do. They were willing to do donor egg. We prepared them effectively. She had already had many failed donor egg cycles and it hadn't worked, but they came to us and we did all the work that we needed to do. And, of course, they got pregnant. They had their beautiful baby. Now, she has three adult children who essentially are more than happy. And this is a conversation that already transpired within the family, that in the event of her passing, the, the children will raise the, 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 brother, the sister. So it's a little girl. And so the reality of it is that that's not everyone's life. That's not everyone's situation. That's not everyone's desire. I said to this patient, I love her, she's beautiful. And I said to her, you are a braver woman than me because there ain't no way that I'd be having a baby at 58. Like <laughs> that is not going to happen in this body, <laughs> right? So the reality is that for some people, that is the thing that that's that's what they want. Now, not most of my patients are way under that age group, right? But sometimes they do. You know, like we did an analysis. We had it overseen by one of my professors at Harvard School of Public Health. And we did an analysis of our patient cases and we added, there were 544 patients that, were, that was added to this analysis. And essentially it was a per protocol analysis, which meant that they have to have at least, follow the protocol at least 80% as a couple in order to be added to the analysis. It was over a seven year period. And we were able to demonstrate a 78.8% live birth rate Wow. For couples who were previously infertile, wow. who had previously tried lots of different things that hadn't worked, and who, for the most part, had been told that they would never have a baby. Now, what's interesting about this patient cohort, which is our Rosen Institute patient cohort, is that despite being, despite having had many failed treatments and being told multiple times by different doctors, different clinics, that they would never conceive without donor egg, for example, only 5.6% of that patient population actually required donor egg. The majority of our patients conceived naturally. It was over 40% wow. of the 78.8% conceived naturally. Wow. The ones that needed IVF, there, there are many publications out there that will demonstrate the, you know, the average number of IVF cycles you need to have a close to 80% live birth rate. Is how many actually, and let me ask you this question. In order to have a close to 80% live birth rate through IVF, how many IVF cycles do you think a couple needs on average? Well, since we did IVF, and mm -hmm. back when we did it, 
back uh, in, in the early 80s, it was relatively new. Uh, and, Very new. And we, and I'm listening to you and I'm marveling, you know, at the 58-year-old woman because we were, uh, uh, we were probably, we got into the program at the skin of our teeth because we were, quote, old. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, we, we are, the program we were in is three, three shots and you're done. So yeah, we, right. had, okay. we had our three shots okay. and we were done. So how many, so how many IVF cycles on average do you think that you need to have in order to have a live birth? Just would, give me a number. I'd say five. five. All right. So here's the thing. In this analysis, it was published in Human Reproduction, the journal, and they demonstrated in 178 thousand IVF cycles that a couple needs an average of eight IVF cycles no. in order to have a close to 80% live birth rate. No. Eight. Now, eight. Now, through our program, what we see is when people prepare, like when they absolutely need IVF and we prepare them for IVF, they need a maximum of two. Oh, wow cycles of IVF wow. in order to take home a baby. So, you know, it's a big, and, you know, there are obviously there's variations, there's always standard deviations to these things, but the reality is that you really need to look at this for what it is, is that there is immense power in optimization of biochemistry. And that power is for the most part, something that gets left to chance. The vast majority of infertility diagnosis these days is my absolute least, like, I actually think it's a joke, to be honest, when a couple comes to me and says, oh, we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility. Mm -hmm. I go, well, and 40% of couples who essentially struggle to get pregnant are diagnosed with unexplained infertility. Now, unexplained infertility, as far as I'm concerned, is a non-diagnosis. What it means is that somebody has not taken the time to understand why this couple is struggling to conceive and what are the factors. You know, I often talk about minor factors, the obstacles to optimum fertility. We know from data in the general population that a couple at peak fertility conceives in three cycles. It's literally have sex, get pregnant, you know, done. We're no longer having this conversation. When we're still having this conversation, we need to understand why. Because what we know, and again, this is based on general population data, if you have a minor factor, and a minor factor can be anything from, you know, a sperm parameter that is not where it needs to be, uh, irregular cycle, or PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or endometriosis, you name it, all of those things, one minor factor, okay? Now, if you have one minor factor into the equation, all of a sudden we go from an average of three months time to pregnancy to an average of two years, so there is a huge compounding effect that goes on there. A second minor factor takes us to seven years and a third takes us to 40 years time to pregnancy. Wow. No one has 40 years to get pregnant. So this is why some couples run out of time because they have these multiple minor factors that aren't properly, one, diagnosed, two, properly addressed and managed. And they keep trying the same strategy going around in circles, you know, and then they run out of time altogether to have a baby. So can you see, it's sometimes not that, you know, infertility is increasing for the sake of infertility increasing. I think that there is a part of it which is associated with a broken system. You see, that is not actually looking at people holistically. That's not looking at 
What is it that is being presented in this situation that is going to support you know, that couple being able to achieve their outcome. And then, of course, we have the unexplained infertility and, you know, couples just put, tear their hair out and figure, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. What we did as a result of after presenting this data, I got to present this data in the British Fertility Society earlier this year. And we took all of this data and we built a predictive model from it that basically now helps us to be able to have a couple come in and based on their specific parameters to give them an understanding of their expected probability of live birth through the fertility program compared to general population, meaning, you know, doing nothing compared to doing this with IVF compared to just doing IVF on its own. And what we observe time and time again, you know, we've used artificial intelligence and machine learning to create this. And what we observe time and time again is that for the couples who actually go through this process, they're in a much better place to be able to conceive in however other way they need to attempt conception depending on their specific situation. But these things don't just happen, you know, by magic. When, When things are not straightforward in terms of fertility, it requires intervention, but it requires the right type of intervention. Wow. I kind of wish I knew you back then, uh, so be it. Uh, oh no, this, this, none of this would have been possible. No, I know that, you know that, <laughs> I know that. We were, uh, um, hey, uh, it, it all works out really well in the universe. Absolutely. I told you, my son and daughter-in-law, and granddaughter out there uh, in the kitchen um, so it, it all works <laughs> out because it's part of the the grand scheme of the universe so yeah. uh, uh owing to some time restraints on your end because i, I like i said um uh you you do a a, a podcast a talk sex yes and, and we had, talk sex last year yeah and and i i i had the uh, uh, uh the uh, actually it was a joy not the joy of sex but it was a joy listening because it, it was a, a little bit of a new world for me because this stuff is not in my realm. So um, just to wrap up, because I know you're really busy and and, um, and it's Tuesday and all that other stuff. Uh, so I did listen to to um, the, just a couple, if, if it's okay. Uh, and, and I just think it would add, it's not humor, but it, it kind of lightens a very heavy subject. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what better thing heavy. than sex, let's be honest. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> two things from Talk Sex that I, I listened to to ask you. Um, uh, and, and your co-host there, Kim Amani. Right? Oh, yes. And that was my guest, Kim. Yeah, yes. She was your guest. And and uh, so two, two quick questions and we'll wrap. Uh, when and how did Kim get into vaginal kung fu i don't know what the hell that is (sighs) okay so vaginal kung fu according to kim so kim you know it's really interesting because i met kim um recently but i had been following her for some time before we did the interview and the very first um i guess snippet or how i got introduced to kim was her holding up a surfboard with her vagina in santa monica beach Wow. And immediately, yes. Wow. That was my response. I was like, OMG, you know, and 
I was like, okay, I need to find out more about this. And, you know, she at the time called herself a vaginal weightlifter and she still does actually. And what's interesting about this is that there is an implement and in this case, it's a, it's a jade egg that has a, a two holes in it and a string gets placed in there. It can be a string of any kind. Obviously it has to be a strong string depending on what it is that you're lifting with your vagina. Um, but basically that string gets placed in there. It gets around, like it gets, you know, kind of wrapped around whatever it is and, and it can be hooked to anything. So ultimately, you know, once the egg gets inserted into the vagina, it's the pelvic floor muscles job to keep the egg in there. Now, mm -hmm. this requires a lot of practice. You know, in fact, I got my own little jade egg situation going on here. And in this particular instance you know when you actually buy the kit you get the jade egg and this is the pouch that you actually hook up to the to the string to be able to actually hold and do exercises and whatever else with it what what i have this doing in my office well i talk sex so you know this is essentially <laughs> why it sits here but basically with um her she you know she teaches how to start this practice and how to do it and, and why you do it and so on and so forth there is a world Guinness record for vaginal weightlifting, believe it or not. There is a gymnast called Tatiana. And in fact, let me just see Tatiana world record vaginal weightlifting. Let's see. Um, let me see if I can find it quickly as we speak. There you go. Tatiana Kozaknova. She's a Russian gymnast and she can lift... 31 pounds with her vagina. So it's about 14 kilos, right, uh, <laughs> with her vagina. Now, I don't know how much surfboards weigh, but they kind of would be up there. And um, and so, you know, here was Kim with all sorts of implements, you know, talking about this, this practice and, of course, you know, doing this uh, demonstration of a surfboard of Santa Monica. And that's, that's how I got introduced to her. And it was fascinating because, you know, one of the things that is true, Kegel exercises have been around for a long time, which is, you know, people kind of talking about, and we talk about Kegel exercises for reducing stress incontinence and organ, you know, kind of uh, prolapse and, and all of that kind of thing. What happens with Kegels as we are taught to do it these days is essentially to just do it with by contracting and relaxing the muscles of the pelvic floor. So what we're told is that when you're about to urinate, you essentially want to stop yourself from urinating. And that those are the muscles that you're utilizing. The problem with that is that if you, and I don't know if you are into bodybuilding or weightlifting, I am, I haven't yet got into the vaginal weightlifting, but I actually do proper bodybuilding and weightlifting at the gym. And one thing I know for sure is that you are not going to grow your biceps by just doing pumping iron, you know, like air pumping your bicep muscles. It's just like you're going to pretty much maintain whatever it is that you have, but you're probably going to lose muscle as we age by doing that. You have to add resistance, right? And so by adding resistance, you actually are able to, and, and especially when it comes to vaginal Kegel exercises, if you don't add an implement or something to give you to guide the contraction and relaxation of those muscles, you don't really know if you're actually tightening up the right muscles or not. You know, most people, when they do Kegel exercises, they tighten up their bum muscles, 
you know, which is not actually what you're trying to get done here. You're literally trying to tighten up your vaginal muscles, which are very different. And so by inserting, you know, a, a toy or some kind of implement that actually provides right. some level of understanding of proprioception, you know, like where you're actually positioned in that whole thing and how the body operates is going to be something that's going to help to activate the right types of muscles. So the premise around, you know, vaginal weightlifting is more about really addressing all of those different, you know, kind of factors when it comes to be able to strengthen vaginal muscles and prevent organ prolapse and address a urinary incontinence and all of that, you know, important stuff, especially as women age and especially, and this also obviously for men yeah. is, is important, but it's different, of course. Um, but for women, not only as we age and post childbirth, this is going to be really important because most women are somewhat urinary incontinent post-childbirth for a period of time, if not forever, unless they do something about it. Wow. And, and you know what? Uh, I mean, I got pages of stuff to ask you, but we're going to stop because you, you've been so gracious and, and this was great. What a great way to end. Uh, please come back. Uh, oh, yes, it will be a delight. Come back and we talked about that. Come back. We'll talk more. Uh, I, I just want to thank you so much, Gabriella. You, you really have been so gracious uh, and, and with your time. And, and uh, I, I'm going to actually listen to this again because there's so much stuff you talked about. It's everyday life. It's living. Yeah. It's living yeah. and it's the future. And it's so important. And, and it was Absolutely. a great, it was a great, uh, I'm an old movie buff and Cher did a wonderful movie with Nicolas Cage called Moonstruck. And I quote this all the time. In the middle of the movie, uh, she slaps him in the face, Nicolas Cage, and she, and she tells him, snap out of it. And that's mm -hmm. what this session with you is. Snap out of it, people. Listen and learn, because you've been amazing in your knowledge base. This is great stuff, and I want to thank you. I'm going to uh, stop recording. Thank you. But stay on thank the you. air, because we'll just do a wrap. But um, again, thank you, Gabriella. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So stay on the air. I'm going to say goodbye.